this mic on? Oh, great, good. That's great. Um, my name is Damien. If you don't know me, I'm one of the members of the church. And it's a great pleasure to be here and a privilege to open and share God's word with you today. Um, I'm just going to pray and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditation, meditations of my heart acceptable in your sight, my Lord, my God, my rock, my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Um, yeah, so Lizzie read one of the most amazing passages of Scripture that I think there can be to remind us about the truth of the gospel. Uh, and before we get into that, I want to tell you that I'm Irish. And um, if you don't know, if you know anything about Irish people... They're usually blessed with many brothers and sisters and cousins. It's not exclusive to Irish people, but it is particularly true of Irish people. And I grew up, I had a really happy childhood, um, and I had loads of cousins who were much older than me. And I don't know about you, but having older cousins um, is a bit cool, because they get to share things maybe that they shouldn't share with you. Um, and I, I had several that used to come and visit. They lived in the countryside, and they used to come to Bel near Belfast where we lived. And I had one cousin in particular, and this is going back to the 80s. Her name was Siobhan, and she was so full of life, and she was so much fun. But to me, she was just really, really cool. Um, she was always buzzing with joy and... Um, she was also very bad at tidying her room. I remember that too, because my dad used to tell her off when she came and stayed. My dad would be like that. But she was just so much fun. And a short while ago, um, another cousin of mine, uh, Karen and I went to visit, read a letter that Siobhan had written way back in the 80s. And it, it talked about things like the play, pop bands at the time, this is about 1983, the police, Duran Duran, and going to the phone box with a load of 10p coins to make a phone call to a boy you might have liked. That was, that was her world at that time, somebody that she had a crush on. And at that time, um, she was due to come back and stay with us um, at the weekend, to come back from a place called Lurgan in County Armagh and come to my parents' house. But we received the news that when she'd finished and visiting friends, and on their way cycling back home, at age 17, she was struck by a car, and I never got to see her again. That was my first introduction to the sting of death. And I remember even now the, the sense of shock, the anger, the pain, the tears that enveloped not just my family, the cousins, the aunties and uncles, and of course her family, but the community. As her uh, school lined the streets in their school uniforms as a sign of something that should not be. 
The pain at the injustice of death, of course, is not just felt at a personal level. I know many of you will know that. Recently, we've heard of terrible atrocities that are being committed in the Middle East. We hear it time and time again when there's a mass shooting or another war that breaks out. The pain of death is felt locally and globally. Regardless of class or ethnicity, the feelings are the same. Pain, anguish, sadness, grief. Without any need for explanation, it would seem to me that that is a hardwired response deep within our psyche that death is not right. How do we make sense of this? And historically, outside of a creator worldview, man has not known best, or sorry, has not known really what to do with death. I read recently that King Louis the 14th um, banished the use of the word death in his palace. He didn't want to accept that. He was a king and that would be the end of it and there would be no talk of death. Philip of Macedon, further back, the father of Alexander the Great, he was the complete opposite. He appointed one of his servants to come into his presence every day and say, Philip, you will die. On this topic, Shakespeare famously wrote about death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. We don't know what to do with death or to make any sense of death. And to contemplate it in isolation without the knowledge of the love of God that we've heard about today makes no sense. It leaves us still feeling angry and without hope. And one must draw the conclusion that life is meaningless. As we approach this passage, let me share a quote from Tim Keller, who many of you will know who passed away, a pastor who passed away earlier this year. He said this, death was not part of God's original design. We were not created to age, weaken, fade and die. We were not created for love relationships that end in death. Death is an intrusion, a result of sin, and our human race is turning away from God. You see, according to the Bible, this is why I love it, death has an origin. There's some sense that starts to unfold when you start to listen to God's word and understand it more. Right at the beginning we're told that our first parents um, and all their descendants were created to enjoy God and to enjoy him forever. God had provided everything they needed and he lovingly warned them all they had to do was to trust in his goodness. Catastrophically, as you may know if you've read it, they believed in Satan's lie that they did not need to trust God. The consequence of their turning away from God was their sin. And as a result, their bodies would fade and decay, and over time, they would eventually die. 
You see, the origin of physical death is therefore inextricably linked to spiritual death, our rebellion against God. Elsewhere, Paul writes, all have sinned in the, in the letter to the Romans and fallen short of the glory of God. The claim that we're wrestling with today is that it is not just physical death, but spiritual death that is a tragedy, and all of us are under its curse without Christ. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And as we look at this passage and go through it again, this is what we have in mind. This reality that physical death for us all is certain, but that spiritual death in our rebellion against God is also a reality. So let's get into the passage that uh, Lizzie beautifully read for us. Um, if you have it open in front of you, I'll, I'll go over it in, in different. It's quite a long passage. Interestingly, it's called the death of Lazarus in my, in my NIV. There's only seven verses that talk about his resurrection. It's only a small, tiny part. So there's lots of dialogue to consider. So John, um, as we have learned in our series, is an eyewitness. Uh, he was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He's an eyewitness to this event. Um, and the last time I, we were in chapter 10 a few weeks ago, and Alex reminded us that Jesus' ministry has continued. Um, it's going well for those who are uh, putting their faith and trust in him, but it's not going well for him because he was nearly stoned to death, if you look back in chapter 10. The uh, Jewish leaders have started to take particular offense, uh, notably at his teaching that um, God is his father. So we start this, these verses with um, an introduction to a certain man from a certain family. His name is Lazarus, and we learn that he is sick or ill. He has two sisters who we've met, if you've read the rest of the Gospels, in Luke chapter 10. Um, that's the story of Mary and Martha who welcomed Jesus into their house. I'm, from my memory, I think this has happened sometime before that. But certainly there's a relationship between Jesus and this family. And it's at this point we also learn that John would be a rubbish um, film and TV reviewer because he gives you a spoiler alert about something. He doesn't give you a spoiler alert about something that's going to happen in the next chapter. He tells us, which I can't understand why, <laughs> this is the story. The, this family uh, regard, um, has this great story about Mary anointing the Lord's feet, uh, wiping it with our anointing the Lord and wiping his feet with her hair. I don't know why he couldn't wait. But clearly this, this family was well known in relationship to the Lord Jesus. We also know that they um, love Jesus and that Jesus loves them. When, when um, they send word, they say, Lord, the one you love, and they use the word, the word here is phileo, there's a fellowship, there's a sense of loving in that regard. And, and they say to him, please, Lord, can you come? Because, well, obviously, they want him to heal her. And as we continue, we learn that Jesus is not um, in the vicinity. He's about a day's walk away from where this family lives. 
Jesus, when he hears this news, it's good, it sounds good. He says he's confident. <clears throat> Excuse me. The sickness will not end in death. But curiously, he says instead, this sickness will be used to praise God. Now that is a bit strange to me. Not only God, but the Son of God will also be praised. And we are told that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And the word here is, is a deeper word for love. It's the agape word. So this is a family. This is the same. The brother is sick. I think he's, according to most scholars, he's the younger brother of the sisters, and he's sick. In fact, he's very, very sick at this point. And we know that Jesus loves them dearly. So you think Jesus would go, wouldn't you? Am I the only one that would think that? You would think that if you loved, that he would go. I mean, this is the same Jesus who fed the 5,000, walked on water, healed the lame, and gave sight to the blind. This is not a difficult situation to heal somebody from sickness. It's going to be okay. This is what I'm thinking. He's going to take his team and he's going to say, right, let's rush back and, and get me near to Lazarus so I can heal him. That's not what it says in my Bible. This is a surprising twist. He stays two more days. Two more days when one of his closest friends is sick. Why? Because verse 5 tells us he loves them. And somehow he's going to use this incident for the, to praise his father and that he will too be praised. He delays. Now, husbands, take note at this. If your wife has been asking you to do a particular job for some time and you haven't get round to it yet, you can say that I have delayed in doing so because I love you. And therefore, depending on the depth of your love for your wife, it might take you a very long time to complete that job. Jesus goes on to explain that they need to return. But there's some concern that if he goes back, um, the people that tried to kill him before will succeed in the plan. Jesus is confident and explains to them there is basically nothing to fear. He's not going to stumble. This isn't his time. And, and then adds that their, our friend, Lazarus, has fallen asleep, um, which is interesting, that a good old disciples who I love, um, who are people like me who get things wrong all the time, think, oh, well, he's, he's sleeping. That's great. Oh, that's so good. It didn't matter that we stayed for two more days. That's okay. He's asleep. That will do him the world of good. But he's dead. He's dead. Again, Jesus makes a statement that does not make sense on any level unless you know him. I'm glad he's not there so that you may believe. Already there's a confidence 
that we see through the word of the Lord Jesus that this is not the end. The disciples don't see it. And they're so worried, um, all except Thomas. Thomas gets such a bad rap, doesn't he, later on in the Gospels for um, doubting. But here he is, he's like shadow boxing. He's ready to go to war. We'll go with you, Jesus, and we'll all die together. How badly wrong have they got this picture? Moving on, verse 17 and following. By the time Jesus gets there, the harsh reality is that Jesus has been in the tomb for four days. According to the princess bride, he is not mostly dead. He is entirely and all dead. And at this tragic scene, um, as was customary, there is a, a crowd of mourners. There's not just family and friends. There would have been Jerusalem, I think, is about two miles from Bethany. There, would have, there was a large crowd of people mourning the loss. And it is interesting to me, at least, that the person, as Jesus approaches, the one who was almost rebuked for her busyness is Martha. She rushes out to meet the Lord Jesus once she hears that he's here. And listen to her, her initial response. Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you feel the weight in that? If only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And then she adds, but even now, I know that God will give you what you ask. What faith. What faith she has, this woman, this close friend of Jesus. And Jesus responds by saying, your brother will rise again. What confidence that Jesus has in the face of this extraordinary faith. And here is where everything changes. Here is, we start to, is where we start to get a glimpse of the mysterious statements and the curious answers that he was giving when he declares in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever believes in me will never die. Then he asks, the most important question that any of us could be ever asked having heard that, do you believe this? And some people may be in this room today who do not yet believe this. I know what that feels like. But the very fact that you're here means there might be some curiosity within you that is stirring to find out more. Yes, Lord, she says. You're the Messiah the Son of God. What faith. Her reply tells us everything. She goes to fetch her sister and on hearing that Jesus has arrived, Mary rushes out to meet him. The crowd of mourners see her running and think that um, she must be rushing back to the tomb and they follow her. And Mary echoes the sentiment of her sister, Lord, if only you had been here. And what unfolds 
is heartbreaking. These are two women who love Jesus deeply. She's crying. Her friends are crying. Jesus is crying. He is not dispassionate. He is not cold or callous. Or He reveals a side to him that until this point we have not seen. And through his tears he asks, where have you laid it? The onlookers uh, remark that Jesus really did love Lazarus. Because they see his emotion, but they miss the point. They have reduced him to a healer, but he's just a healer. That's only a little bit impressive. And that's still true today, how easily Jesus is dismissed as just a good teacher. As just a kind leader. As just a wise man. But good leaders. Good teachers. They don't make the the claims that Jesus did a short time before. And as we turn to verse 38 and following. We now get to the apex of the narrative. Dramatically. Jesus calls for the stone to be removed. But Martha is worried. I love that. She she doesn't know what's coming next. It's a real authentic faith. I don't know what's going to happen here. But there's one thing that I need to tell you, Jesus. And I think the King James translation makes it plain. When it says, by this time he stinketh. We don't talk like that anymore but it is a fair summary of the reality of death, both physical and spiritual. Jesus reminds her of his promise and the stone is rolled away. The glory of God is about to be revealed. Put yourself there. Jesus is standing toe to toe with the scourge of mankind, death. And he shouts, Lazarus, come out! He is not afraid of death. Don't miss that. Death is overcome by the word of God. The grave can no longer hold the friends of Jesus. That's good news, right? If you count yourself as a friend of Jesus, that's good news. How would you have reacted at that, at that graveside? To see someone walk out of a tomb who had been dead for four days. You see, sometimes as Christians, we've heard this story So many times. We read it out to children in our kids' Bibles. 
We've read the Gospels many times, but death is defeated before our eyes. The grave cannot hold back the friends of the Lord Jesus. When I was reading this, when I was preparing for this, this is a bit silly, but indulge me for a minute. I wonder what would have happened if Jesus had said, everybody come out. Because they all could have done. There's up to six people buried in a family tomb. Everyone come out. And you might laugh. But that is the reality of the gospel. That all who hear the voice of the Lord Jesus will not die. So, what can we make of this um, passage? Have I got this clicker right? A couple of things to share. First one, number one. Jesus, the Son of God, as we learned out last time and as Martha has declared, is sovereign and glorious. His timing is perfect. What do we mean? Um, Well, as, as I've just said, Martha is declared in the Son of God. Um, in faith, that's who we believe him to be. He is one of the three distinct persons of the, our triune God in the Godhead. When we proclaim that he is sovereign, we declare that he is in complete control of everything. Do you believe that? Nothing happens outside of his knowledge and plan. No thing. And it's demonstrated here right in the text, in the delay. In the confidence to his response to the sisters. But this is this isn't just this isn't just a news flash for now. This has been revealed throughout the scriptures. In Isaiah 46, <clears throat> verses 10 and 11, we hear, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I made known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. It pleases Jesus to give life to his friends. Another way of putting it is that God is the ultimate ruler orchestrating the course of history according to his divine plan regardless of the evil acts that humanity continuously perpetrates against itself. That's good news, right? That for every single one of us, he has a plan and a purpose prepared for us in advance that he will see through to fruition. And death will not stand in the way. That's good news, right? This is good news, providing comfort and assurance, knowing that in the midst of uncertainty, when it seems like God is in delaying response to you, that he is actually in control and working out everything according to his plans and his purposes. One of the best verses in the New Testament, in Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him 
who have been called according to his purpose. We know that in all things, in every situation, in the pain, facing the pain of death or enduring suffering, that God works for the good for those who love him and who have been called to according to his purpose. Those who have put their faith and trust in him. And I don't say that glibly without consideration because I'm sure I'm confident because of the size of this Sunday gathering, there will be people who are suffering in our midst. There will be people who, maybe this week, this very morning, who have called out to the Lord Jesus to relieve the most difficult of situations. What I'm about to say, I'm not trying to offend you. I understand. Because there might not be any obvious sign of change today. Things may have even gotten worse since you first called out to him. It could be a life-limiting illness. It could be relationship breakdown. It could be problems at work. It could be all sorts of anxieties that no one else can see. And sometimes there's a delay. As many of you will know, back in the summer, Karen took very ill all of a sudden. All of a sudden. And one night, we were with Kathy um, opening the Bible together. In the middle of the night, she was in great pain. And in those first 24 hours, I was praying continuously. Please, Lord. Please, Lord, stop this pain right now. Please heal her body. Please stop this fever. Please stop the sickness. Please don't tell us any more bad news about septic shock or anything like that. And that went on for weeks. And you stood with us in prayer. And the Lord Jesus brought us through. But I want you to know that it was in the midst of the waiting that the, that the Lord Jesus does his business. He's preparing my heart for all the worst types of outcome. You see, we don't understand delay. But when you look at the Lord Jesus and you listen to him, you can trust in his purposes. We don't understand delay. Even as I'm thinking of that, I'm thinking of Mary and Martha and how they, you know, why didn't you come? Why didn't you come? Well, I hope that if you're feeling like that, that this verse will be of some comfort to you. I'm thinking of the cross um, on a Friday when Jesus has been brutally tortured and left to die. I'm thinking about how his mother, his friends, his followers are still struggling to think, really? This is, this is it? This is the time? It's all over? Is, this doesn't make any sense. But it was only Friday. Three days later, God reveals the perfect timing that we sang about earlier, foretold in the scriptures, and Jesus reveals himself as the victor over death. 
the second thing I'd like us to consider this morning is that Jesus is the author of life. Jesus, the author of life, is the sole cure for the certainty of death. The stats for death in a person's lifetime are not good. You know that. One out of one people who are born will die. That's a reality. Physical death is certain. Even Lazarus will have returned to the tomb. We just don't get to hear about it. But this passage is so full of hope. Jesus, fully God and fully man, was present in creation. He was part of the Godhead that took the dust that he created of the earth and breathed life into it and created us. <coughs> and when you go back, it's, not, it's such a beautiful uh, scene and a couple of passages in the Bible when he creates Adam he's not just content it's not good for him to be on his own so he creates another life from Adam and we have this beautiful first marriage that we see in the beginning of Genesis as Eve comes on the scene did you get that he created us from dust I get when I think about it and you hear at a funeral from dust to dust, it's not meant to be that way. But that's the reality. So think about how you must feel if you're the author of life itself, if you've been there from the beginning, and you see the impact of death amongst your closest friends. It says in the um, NIV translation of the passage that we've just read that Jesus was deeply moved and troubled. But the original language um, used is much stronger. It actually, it's, it's the same language that is re used to refer to horses who are snorting. Do you, do you know that? In other words, Jesus was snorting in anger at this picture of the death of his friend. He's livid. He's furious. At the death of his friend. It's not supposed to be this way. We have to first understand. That. This anger comes because Jesus is the author of life in itself. And he is the sole cure um, to the reality of death. Understanding the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, is the only way to make sense of the tragedy of death. But even more importantly, the incredible, jaw-droppingly, wonderful news about life you see Jesus doesn't leave us dead dead physically dead in our sins <coughs> what other things can we learn from this passage Jesus 
The one who felt the deepest pain stands with you and yours. This is a great comfort to me. If you look back at the text, notice the difference in how he treats the two sisters. We have a savior, by the way, who knows all about torture, separation from his father, death, abandonment from by his friends. He knows suffering like nobody else has ever walked the earth. Would you agree? Right? And notice how he approaches these two different uh, sisters from the same family. Eh? Martha is full of faith, but she has hope. I know, Lord, that in the last day you'll resurrect my brother. Jesus confirms that she's almost right. But Mary is also full of faith, but she is desperately sad. Desperately sad. When you see her, she's weeping. She is completely heartbroken, understandably. She is confused and weeping. Jesus, if you'd been here, that's where she's stuck. And she, she knows who Jesus is, but she's stuck at the, if you'd just been here, everything would be okay. What does Jesus do in response? Does he preach to her? Does he give her a verse from the Torah or the scriptures? Does he give her a quick theological soundbite? What does he do? What does he do? He weeps. That's our Savior. That's our Savior. He treats both sisters differently because they are unique and fearfully and wonderfully made. The process for grief is different for every single person. And our Savior understands. Jesus loved Mary enough to stand with her in her pain and weep with her. We have a Savior who doesn't just understand the pain of death, but he understands us. That's good news, right? Back in the 60s, an American pastor called Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse uh, lost his wife tragically when his children were young. He said this. Um, it It said of him that he was looking for a way to explain to his children about the loss of their mother. And looking down the road, he sees a large American truck, which are massive, coming along. And he says to his children, children, would you rather be run over by a truck or by its shadow? Well, dad would would rather be run over by its shadow because that's not going to hurt us at all. That will just pass over us. That can't hurt us. And Dr. Barnhouse turned to his children and he said, did you know that 2,000 years ago at the cross, the truck of death ran over the Lord Jesus in order that his shadow will pass over us. Jesus doesn't just weep with us. He protects us from the full pain of death. 
I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though they die, will live, will never die. Jesus promises eternal life and guarantees it through his death in resurrection. When we stop to look at the foot of the cross without looking forward to what he promises, we miss it. It's not just his death on the cross to pay the price for our sins. It's his triumphant resurrection three days later and his ascension to be the living God that Alex told us about today. This is not just historical information that I'm passing on to you. This is a reality of how we can face death with the Lord Jesus. I'm conscious of time. I'll try and bring it to a close. Without going into all the details, I can tell you a personal testimony of a time in my life where I, well, in 55 years, where I endured the most pain and despair, where I was truly heartbroken at where I found myself in life. This was some years ago. And I, and I want to just testify, because I feel it's right to do so, that in the midst of, for me, what was my deepest pain and suffering, that I learned more about grace, learned more about God's love, his mercy, his forgiveness for my sin in all the years that I had done previously as a pastor. And my suffering did not stop at that time. But because I trust in him and his good plans and his purposes, I know that he always wants what's good for me and what's best for me and that he will ultimately not necessarily um, remove what is troubling me most, but he will give me the ability to endure through the power of his spirit and the promises in his word. The last thing to share with you, Jesus, the only victor over death will roll away every stone of deceit and break every tie, every tie that sin binds us with. At the end of this passage, did you notice that when Lazarus is called from the grave. John doesn't go into, everybody was clapping and shouting and hugging one another. <laughs> like That's what I would put in. Instead, he focuses on the grave clothes. Lazarus, though he is alive, is still wrapped up in death. And that's the reality. We live in a world that is wrapped up in death, that is being deceived on a daily basis by the enemy of God, just as he did our first parents. The stench of spiritual death is around us, but again, by the same means of faith and trust, Jesus comes to open our eyes to the lies of the enemy and break every sin that entangles us and keeps us from enjoying the fullness of God's love. Earlier I read to you the first line of Ephesians 2.1. And it's when, it, when I said to you, as for you, Paul writes, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That is not good news. But it is a statement of fact. The good news is what Paul say, says next. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins 
in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Listen. But because of his great love, you know that love that Jesus showed for Martha and Mary and for Lazarus? But because of his great love, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raises us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming days he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us, expressing his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, that it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. God hates death, physical and spiritual. Jesus is not just the certain cure for the physical death, but he is also the great resuscitator of all of us who have been and are spiritually dead. All of us who have been captive by sin and the deceit of the enemy. All of us who are yet to experience the certain knowledge of an eternal life which starts with him today. Do you believe that? You make known to me, the psalmist writes, the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. God has a plan to be with his people forever. It has not changed from the beginning of the book. And he loves us enough to rescue us from death itself. Three people I'm going to share with three quotes from, as we end, three quotes from um, pastors who, when they were considering their own death, said the following. Death is but a passageway out of prison into a palace. That was John Bunyan, not far from here. Considering his death, a man, a great pastor full of faith said, do not pray for healing. Do not hold me back from glory, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Do you sense it? Do you sense the difference it makes to have a life centered and trusted, believing in that Jesus is the author of life and the victor over, of de- over death? And finally, in a very poignant farewell, Tim Keller turned to his wife, Kathy, and his last words said, There is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest, before he breathed his last. There is no downside for me leaving. We can share in the confidence that through faith in Jesus Christ, the author of life, the victor over death,
the one who helps us to endure suffering today, we can have confidence that we will enjoy the full riches of his promises for eternity. God hates death, both physical and spiritual. And he is not content to leave us that way. His plan from the beginning right to the end is that we would live, love him and enjoy him forever. Towards the end of the book, the end of the Bible, the same author same author of the gospel, writes, Look, Revelation 21, God's dwelling place, as it was in Genesis, is among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear in their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Amen. Let me pray and then I think the band's going to come and sing. Heavenly Father, I pray that your word would not return void. I pray that the good news about the author of life, the victor over death, the one who understands our suffering, sufferings the most would be of great comfort and joy to us all today. I pray that it would strengthen the faith of those who already know you. And I pray that it would soften the hearts of those who don't yet. I pray, Lord, that, yeah, that we would, even in our suffering, turn to you and understand that you know more about pain than we do and that that at least would be of some comfort until we see you face to face.